0: December 17th, 2012, it's The Creative Process. uh, This is episode six of The Creative Process, which is a bi-weekly podcast where we talk with creative people about how they create. Uh, I'm Jared Ponshot, Creative Director at Lullabot, and I host The Creative Process along with Jeff Robbins.
1: Hello. Now, does biweekly mean twice a week or every other week? I can never oh, remember that.
0: Yeah, and I don't know if our listeners know that either. But maybe one of them will clue us in at some point.
2: <laughs> in this
1: case, it means every other week for us. Yeah, but that's when we what, say that, that's, that's, what, that's what we, we mean. mean. Is there another name for uh, semi semi weekly? Semi weekly. I don't know. It's,
0: okay, semi every other hook? every okay. other week. Yeah. This will be this will be a, a really long intro for people, and they'll and it'll create a whole other podcast about. We're cr- creating a m-
1: mnemonic device for people. Yeah, they'll, they'll they'll remember that time that they kept harping on the fact that it was every other week. <laughs> exactly. So Jeff is also he's the founder and CEO at Lullabot,
0: um, but you may know him from seeing him on MTV in his former life uh, before he became <laughs> a web group guru. So he's Jeff Robbins of Lullabot, also frontman from Orbit. Um, and The Creative Process is one of three podcasts that Lullabot supports and puts out. So thank you, Lullabot. Uh, there's also a podcast called Drupalize Me. Uh, and that podcast is hosted by Addie Barry and Kyle Hoffmeyer. And they talk with Drupal people uh, who do pretty amazing things with Drupal and basically talk about how they do the things and uh, try to give people practical, useful knowledge about how to do things with Drupal. Uh, If you've ever tried to use Drupal, you may have found that it's not always the simplest platform for newbies. Uh, So Drupalize Me uh, is a great podcast if you're trying to learn Drupal. Um, The third podcast, uh, besides the creative process and Drupalize Me that Lullabot puts out is called Insert Content Here, uh, and that's hosted by Jeff Eaton. And Jeff is really fun to listen to. I recommend that show. Uh, He talks with industry-leading thinkers and doers in the realm of content strategy and Just content on the web and content across the digital sphere actually in general. So
1: And all of those podcasts are biweekly? That's a good question.
0: I (laughs) I wanna say that They they are. Okay. Yeah. I wanna say that content yeah, insert content here is is bi weekly now as well. So or semi-weekly, I should say.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. Someone someone in our audience will correct us, I'm sure, in the comments. Thanks everyone. For your help.
0: So today on The Creative Process, we are thrilled to have Wayne Losey with us. Uh, hi, Wayne.
2: Hi. How, how are you doing? doing? Very good. How are you guys?
0: Great. Um, Wayne, just to give you a little background on him, he started out uh, with a career in, as a, I th- believe you started as a comic book illustrator. Is that right?
2: Yes, I did. Back yeah. during the uh, black and white glut when uh, Ninja Turtles and uh, The Tick and all those
0: started. Yes. <laughs> The Tick was a great show as well, by the way. (laughs)
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) But Wayne, uh, so he went on to have an illustrious career in toy design and toy creation and just innovation in toy creation. Uh, Wayne helped design and innovate uh, a number of toys that you or your kids probably had or have in your house. Uh, He worked with brands like G.I. Joe and Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, Jurassic Park pokemon star wars i mean the list is ridiculous one of my personal favorites micro machines um this is just some of the things i've gleaned from his bio uh he can maybe fill in some other things but good grief wayne you've worked with a lot of major brands and made a lot of really cool toys
2: it, i've had an amazing career and you know the thing is is every one of those was very different you know the the dictates of how we went about it the needs of each licensor and you know the consumer was very different so it's a huge spectrum mm-hmm. uh, that I've worked on over the years
0: so how do you uh, you you made the leap from 2D to 3D I guess being a comic book illustrator how, tell I'm curious about how that happens would like your doing well sketching creating characters basically and basically that's kind of a fundamental thing to toy design I'm, I'm supposing or
2: well it, you know I got in at a very uh, pivotal time in the evolution of toys uh, action figures were becoming really big it uh uh Todd McFarlane had just released his own line and a lot of the bigger companies were like wow we really have to up the game in action figures so in some place, in some ways, I was the right person at the right time because I could walk in there. I knew anatomy. I knew sort of the, the uh, melodrama of the, the uh, of portraying heroism, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was able to translate that into three D. And I, I had done sculpting, and I've always been sort of a, a tinker minded person, even though I grew up sort of labeled as an artist. You know, I had every build system when I was a kid. You know, Tinker Toys, Lincoln Logs, Legos, all the Lego knockoffs, the Capsell, right. all that.
0: Erector sets.
2: Yeah, everything. Model <laughs> kits. I hated model kits. But, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was it too too much of a dictate for you the, the model kit? Like
2: too no, linear? I, 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 it, it's it's all the glue. To be <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> just, by the end
1: of it, you you that. didn't remember the beginning of it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't have no idea how it I built this, but uh, that was a lot of glue. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah. Well, it, you know, you, you remember that smell when you grow uh-huh. up you know, Oh, sure. rest of your life. Right?
1: Yeah.
0: It sticks in the prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You said you already did sculpting and you, you were basically kind of known as an artist growing up. Did you, did you go to art? So you said you understood anatomy. Was this something that you went to school for or just, you just always kind of played around with this stuff?
2: Uh, Well, you know, I always loved, like, uh, comic books when I was a kid. So I would say from a very young age, like, I just uh, loved them. So I grew up wanting to draw them. Um, So literally, you know, I spent a lot of my free time, even when I was a teen, like, practicing, you know, Mm -hmm. to be a comic book artist. You know, I was chasing around all the... Books, you know, back then you you know it wasn't so easy to find books. There's no Amazon or whatever, so you're lucky to go to Walden Books in the mall and find, you know, how to draw comics the Marvel way or whatever. So, right, um, you know, I I sort of I I was basically self-taught in that way, and then I did go to college for a couple years at University of Akron and took illustration, so I had more life drawing uh, in there, and you know just up the game as far as my draftsmanship skills and perspective and a lot of those things that uh, Mm -hmm. I also needed as I evolved more towards toys.
1: So getting involved in, you know, a a company, so you worked at at Kenner, um, which is is Kenner part of Hasbro? Is that sort of how you ended up in in the Providence area?
2: Yes. uh, Kenner, I I was hired at Kenner, uh, who at that time had already been Bought by Hasbro. My first paycheck was a Kenner paycheck, and my second paycheck literally was a Hasbro (laughs) paycheck, Um, (laughs) which which happens a lot in the industry. Sure, uh, you know companies are bought out all the time. So basically, what Hasbro bought was uh, Easy Bake Oven. You know the the teams that had built all the Kenner toys, Mm -hmm. Play-Doh, Tonka. You know a lot of a lot of brands that they really felt were important to their portfolio.
1: I'm really curious I'm curious how like creativity happens obviously like at a toy company uh, the idea is you know new ideas new toys uh you know coming up with with creative ideas uh, there yet there's obviously a very direct sort of commercial need at the company to to sell things to come out with you know to not release flops mm-hmm. um, although I, I would suppose that some some of that's built into the system. I I know being in the music industry, you know, flops are kind of built into the system. You know, sure. they just sort of put out a relatively low run of of records in that case, you know, and if they don't sell, they sort of move on to the next thing quietly. But uh um yeah, how do, how does the creative process happen at, at a company like that? I mean, both individually for yourself but then also sort of for teams.
2: Well, the process you know can work in a lot of ways. Uh, you're right. There there is there has to be a lot of fluff in the system because it's it's really more of a fashion based system even though they hire a lot of industrial designers which are you know designing cars and dryers and you know all that kind of stuff um, it really is more like fashion so the turnover is very quick it's one of the fastest paced businesses in the world you have to think on your feet all the time and uh, skills wise at least product development wise I would think that any toy designer could walk into uh, any sort of natural industrial design company and and teach them a a few things about, about being quick. So, you know, it's, it's really about being quick and prolific. So a, a lot of times what you'll have, since I worked in the action figure part of the business, a lot of the time, you know, a lot of times we would review scripts or we would you know, sort of look at what was coming down the pike, and and really put together pitches for new licenses, so that you know so, Hasbro might be chosen for uh, Batman versus Mattel or otherwise. So,
0: so um, Star Wars is releasing, you know, new new movies. They you know they came out with three new movies. They would come to a toy company like yours and and say, here's a script for what we're about to start making
2: well they they had an existing relationship with Lucasfilm then, so we were sort of at least first in line I think to to read the script because we were already producing Star Wars toys when the the prequels came out Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah essentially what they would do is they would let toy companies know that you know what we're shopping this around and you know uh, Hasbro your uh, contract ends and blah 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 and we're shopping it around for these next you know this next new trilogy and, you know, at a company at that scale, you know, people are falling all over themselves to get to the next trilogy, right. where it might not be the same for, uh, you know, Men in Black 2 or, you know, Planet of the Apes or right. one of the other dogs that I worked on. I don't know if it's fair to say dogs, but you know, as far as toys, they, they just didn't really sell well. You know, none yeah. of, Not everything translates into toys. very right. anyway. My
0: dinner with Andre action figures just... <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> I do have a big Lebowski on my uh, on my shelf. Oh wow! You know. yeah. I wish I had the Jesus. But
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> what's the craziest uh, project that you ever got asked to create a toy for? Oh man! Anything really unusual? Or?
2: No. You know, I think it's just the part of the business and the scale that I was working at. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess some of the craziest things were you know, little vehicles that, that had, they were called carzillas and they had, they were puns essentially. And the, the, you know, you you would do like little guys that, and you'd give them names like, you know, this was after the muscles era. So you uh-huh. would do a little guy and it would have like a, uh, tw- uh, uh, cabbage patch kid or what, garbage pail kid, or naming yeah. mechanic. Right. So right. Uh, I'm trying to remember the names right now, but, you know, they would have, like, toilet themes and, you know, stuff that's, like, right up the gut for, you know, body humor for boys. <laughs> uh, those were really fun. Uh, that was literally the second thing I worked on. Oh, the wow. Toys,
1: so, <laughs> so the, I mean, there are also probably interesting and weird directions that some of these uh, relatively, I don't know, pedestrian, but sort of, like, you know, obviously, like, creating Star Wars toys, for example, there's, like, the literal version, right? You know, you want to just create small versions of the characters from the movie, but then you get, you know, the ones with big heads or sort of different, you know, where you're creating, like, the Stormtrooper truck or, you know, like, things like that. Or, I mean, are there sort of weird and funny creative directions that things sort of go in sometimes?
2: I think if you're stretching yourself, it goes that way. Um, I guess you with know, the when Star
1: you, Wars Star Wars franchise, you start to see that, right? People well, you, just sort of knowing yeah, that anything to. with Star Wars is going to sell. So that you know, make well, a Star-
2: and, yes, and and you know, when you get in that business, that it it, it they call it licensing, right? So essentially, what you'll do is, uh, you know, Hasbro may have the master toy license, and they may have like a big chunk of everything that's produced for Star Wars, but. You have Lego off to the side that has a huge line of Star Wars stuff. And, you know, it, it, it gets sort of, the licensing gets carved out so that you might have, like, somebody has, like, you know, very small, big head uh, keychain action figures. Y- you know, and uh, it, it's just what you start to see is this huge ecosystem. And it it can be a little frustrating when you're internal to the master or when you're assigned to the master toy license, because you're you, you might want to push a little bit farther, um, but you're also there to provide the the most authentic, uh, you know, because Star Wars is about authenticity. So many of the fans want that, you know, right off the camera. They want to know that, you know, uh, Han Solo has four buttons. On his on his shirt, and it's it's just you know Star Wars created that thirst, right? Um, that people didn't really have before. And I I'm not even sure that it's a healthy healthy thing all the time. Right. <laughs> but like literally, when you're when you're sitting there and there's all this photography from forty years of 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 Star Wars, you, you know that people care. You know how many red buttons were on Darth Vader's chest plate versus white. You know. Wow. Um, right. And so you end up chasing that mentality a little bit, and it really is about uh, uh, your craft. But then the other part of it is like you have to figure out what to sell, you know. So you 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 do have to, you know. I, I on episode two of the prequels, when I was working on it, we created um uh, build your own lightsaber, right? So it was a kit, and you could mm-hmm. change out the gels and change the color of your uh lightsaber blade the projection that would go up the lightsaber blade and you could sort of outfit it to make it look a little bit like darth vader a little like darth, darth maul a little bit like luke that that uh it didn't get approved at the time it didn't make it into the line and it took another two and a half years uh, for it to make it into the line and it, it, you know sometimes you don't even know why and I think part of it is, you know, the marketing people, it's a head-scratcher for them of like, well, why do I want to be the this, why do I want to buy this thing that isn't aligned with a specific character, which is pretty much how toys are built. Mm-hmm. But as you've seen the toy industry change over time, and I actually think Interactive has done this because Interactive gives you so much choice, right? You know, I get to create my you know, avatars all the time. You know, you just get so much choice. So trying to build choice and individuality into toy lines that are very so, uh, pre-described
1: mm-hmm. has
2: been a huge challenge for the toy industry. Uh, because you, you know, you're trying to, you make money by making hundreds of thousands of something, not by carving yourself into little niches.
1: Right. What's the, what's the brainstorming process like at a, at a toy company? Who's in the room, like what, what what are the sort of constraints around coming up with new ideas? I mean I would suppose you know
0: yeah, and if you're to, given to sort a, of
1: step away from something like the you know Star Wars where it's kind of dictated but sort of mm-hmm. more into kind of where you have more creative freedom
0: yeah, and if you're given a script as this as your starting point that's a very it's disconnected from any final medium it's not even a sketch or like you know shot photos of the thing that they've made to shoot in the movie or something. Yes, and so
2: much can change. Mm-hmm. So to to split that into, into two, um, broadly, it's funny because I have sort of a love-hate relationship with brainstorming just because it can, it can be very ritualized, right? And, uh, you know, it, 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 there's a social dynamic that goes along in brainstorming that can get in the way of it actually getting to good questions or mm-hmm. to good answers, mm-hmm. solutions.
0: Can you dis- Can you explain that a little bit or
2: uh well uh some designers might have a, a pet project or a pet concept that that you that, that they just have to voice every time you have a brainstorm. <laughs> they just might love, you know, the, a, 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 one example, you know, and a company came out with it just a few years ago at one toy of the year, but for like my first 10 years in the toy industry, people like every brainstorm, even if you're brainstorming action figures, it would be like what if we did like a spy RC that had a camera in it, and it had the it had the uh, video screen in the remote control, so that you could see where the where the car was going, and then you could drive to where your sister's taking a shower, and then beep at her, and you, you know, and like yes, that's really cool. But that you know that's a that's an item business where that's not what we're here for. So I I, I feel like it's also the litigation problems. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But you know, it's one of those you know, it becomes sort of predetermined depending on who you have in the room. And then there are specialists, mm-hmm. and someone might someone might be more of a you know they, they're a role play specialist, so they're good at they normally build like uh, web shooters for mm-hmm. Spider Man and lightsabers and blasters and things like that. And that, that's their specialty. And you might bring them into a brainstorm specifically because you want. A different type of flair because those guys tend to be natural and generous as well
0: so, i've gotta say that's just the ultimate thing to be able to answer when people say what do you do for a living <laughs> like, i'm a saber and is. blaster specialist for you know spider-man webbing and that kind of stuff
2: <laughs> yes, yes. Well, wow. I, it, those are the types of toys that people remember because they're those item businesses, like the toys yeah. that you love from the seventies, right? Oh, so right. you can like, yeah. you know, you can't really say like, oh, well, I'm uh, the designer of Walrus Man. You know? <laughs> I mean, somebody might think that's really cool, but it's very yeah. different than you know, the, being the guy that said I designed all the lightsabers. Yeah. Right. So. So do um, you have
0: rules when you talked about the brainstorming easily going? to this place where people steer it towards their pet projects or those kinds of things. Do you, did you have rules, or how did you make brainstorming effective when you were doing it?
2: Uh, usually, I would say, this may sound tyrannical, but what I would say is that the best, the best brainstorms, the most useful brainstorms, maybe not the most dynamic or the most uh, surprising, but the most useful brainstorms I ever had we set some criteria of, of what, you know, just three or four things, you know, wrist shot uh, criteria of what we were trying to achieve
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, and made that a little bit more clear instead of just saying, oh, well, we're trying to make, you know, guy, Spider-Man, yeah. you know, action figures, or we're trying to do military micro machines or mm-hmm. something, you know, so we'd be very specific of the dynamics that we were chasing, what what do we think the consumer is looking for? What does the type of uh, technical innovation look like that we're trying to achieve? And that that usually helped helped it a little bit.
1: Hmm. So so one of your credits here is is senior director of R and D at at Hasbro, uh, which you did for quite a while. Um, hmm. I, I'm curious what r&d uh looks like at a company like that i mean how much of it is driven by commercial timelines and you know uh the christmas rush and stuff like that and and how much people are able to just kind of experiment and try out new ideas
2: uh everything is late uh, you know, before you even start working on it, even before someone might sign a license or, be, or before management might commit to a new internal idea, it's usually late. And the the reason that is is because there's you just have to. It's such a fast business that you have to mm-hmm. be prompt about being in in the cycle. So essentially, what what determines. Your dates are there's only two it, when you're in mass market toys, there's only two dates to hit, and that's uh, planogram sets. When they reset the new planogram, you know, the layout for the uh, aisle. So if you're in the action figure business, they decide, you know, uh, you have to have a lot of your stock uh, in the stores on, I think, like July 15th and January 15th. So there's only two dates to hit all year long. <laughs> um unless you're going to throw a media blitz behind it you might be able to launch something in October that has advertising so if you're doing like a new potato head or easy bake oven or something that's just one item a lot of times you can get away with doing October um but it it, it it's so fast and it you know it's uh it's a churn uh, kind of merchandising style of business than a high... In- You'd think that innovation sort of sets the tone there, but it really doesn't. You know, people, mm-hmm. especially in the action figure aisle, it's sort of like, um, how much innovation can I have to make it, and this sounds terrible, but to make it feel new? Because right. you're still selling some mm. action figures, you're still selling a you're still selling an action figure and an action figure is expected to move. It's yeah. expected to hold act- you know, weapons. It's expected to maybe have some features, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't And I, ideally I
0: would guess that they want something that is enough. Like other things that they've ma- that manufacturers are making that it doesn't, that it's sort of easy. It's like too much innovation is not a good thing. Probably. Uh, <laughs>
2: No, and uh, to be honest uh, like I mean at the end of the day, part of the reason that I went out on my own is because of my own relationship with innovation, and uh, I became a specialist over time in in getting innovation to market quickly, to reduce that stutter step, that intellectual or logistical speed bump of getting innovation to the shelf and after a while, you you know you 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 hear people saying to you on a day to day basis that they want innovation, but they have a very you know it, they have a very different opinion about what innovation means. So I, I think just using that word, you know, it's much easier for me to be on the outside, and people come to me when they need uh, very uh, broad or different thinking. Than it is for me to be internal and on staff and just take the next thing that's coming down the pike because, uh, like literally right before I left, I worked on something that was produced internally and then I recreated GI Joe at a different scale and we had a TV show. We did that in nine months. Um, wow. And it's you know so yeah I mean there's a little bit of. Dogma that's in there. A lot of these characters have been re- have been created already, but it's up to you to sort of recreate that whole franchise. Right. So I did that, and then you know my next assignment was you know the Spider-Man three movie, which you know you could tell very early in the script that it was that it was a little chaotic, you know, and you know you were just like, ah, well, we'll see how that turns out, you know, and it, it ended up being you know the lowest selling of the of that first trilogy or whatever but mm-hmm. it, that was the last thing i worked on at hasbro and it just solidified why why maybe my temperament didn't quite fit the job anymore
1: right. so do you feel like the level of innovation or creativity ultimately kind of gets dictated by the business decisions, the business environment, the sort of optimization of the company towards sales and profitability, uh, that, that as ultimately you needed to kind of leave and get outside and, and create your own <laughs> business decisions in mm-hmm. order to, to really innovate?
2: Yes. What I would say is that it's sort of, it's a Pavlov's dog thing when you're internal because over time you, you feel like it, well, your box gets smaller. I guess the thing is, you know, so thinking out of the box becomes easier, but the the target is more stifling. You know, that box becomes more stifling and they want everything inside that box. So you end up with a situation where, where you're fighting that. and, And it's just very difficult to, have it both ways but what you become is sort of preconditioned to this notion that all the dictates are are sort of true well there's a traditional price point you know we always have to have something at you know $5 and $10 and $15 and mm-hmm. the majority of the sales are going to be at $5 and you know we have you know, uh, we can't just put one item on the, in the planogram because we'll never get space for it. So, you know, we have to think about what, what is two feet of this concept that may only deserve like one feet of, of space or, or it, you know, as far as like uh, its validation in the market and who might be interested in it. So you always have these dictates, whether it's the buyers, you know, the buyer of Walmart is very opinionated he's going to be conservative he wants to be able to sell through everything so he looks at whether it's got animation who the animation has been done by is it a big event film when can i get it off my shelf you know mm-hmm. so it it really becomes that box becomes small and it dictates it's hyper ritualized and it, it feel it you know there's some days where making toys feels like groundhog day <laughs> and after a while, you're Bill Murray and you refine yourself to a point where you're like, oh my God, you know, I, I can't, you know, I've done everything I can do under these dictates and I, I'm not really sure what to do. I have to get out of this loop.
0: It's funny how I had never thought about um, someone being sort of like the design director for Boys Toys at, Boy, I almost said boy toys, uh, for boys' toys at at uh, Kenner or Hasbro. That that it's it's basically like a client services creative kind of a thing, more than a working at a product company, which I think is what I've always maybe perceived it as more. And it's interesting how you have designers that work in interactive that you know do client services for a long time, and the ones who love it love the client services part because it's a new a new challenge all the time. But mm-hmm. then there's always those ones that get out of it because it's like it's the same challenge for a new person and, and I don't have enough control and I want to get to where I can actually make something great and they get out of it. But it, it has, it sounds like those challenges are very similar.
2: Uh, doing, li- doing the license part of the business is totally like that. And I, I think I, you're right, and I've never looked at it as client services before, but it, that's exactly what it is. My, I, for one year... I was assigned to make the approvals process go much smoother with Lucasfilm. So I, I lived in San Francisco, right downtown, and I would drive out to Skywalker Ranch every day or every other day or whenever and I would take you know, their licensing team through each of the new products and basically dicker with them a little bit back and forth about how you know are mm-hmm. we really worried about those six buttons on the vest or, you know, mm-hmm. are we really worried about this likeness? And a lot of times the answer is, well, we're worried about all of it. Yeah. Um, but a lot of it was sort of a give and take about like, real, really, you're going to, you're going to slow down. You know, we might miss our shelf date because you want a, a button over here on a blaster for this tertiary character. So uh, I think that that's what made it difficult for me when I got to Spider-Man 3 is because I'd worked on something called Zevos, which at the end of the day, there was an invention created called Stickvas and it was a ball joint build system. But everything beyond that ball system, we created. We created the world fantasy. We created all the character types. We created, you know… And then I moved to GI Joe, which was a different. You know, there were some dictates that were put on, and then it, it was really about re-spin, reformulation. It was about, you know, casino royale. It was like mm-hmm. how do we modernize James Bond? Yeah. And then when I got Spider-Man, I'm like, oh, this client thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So yeah, you get attuned to something, and then you get a taste of something, and then that's what you want, right? It's freedom. Yeah. There.
0: There's. So when some people use the word innovation, what they're what they're really looking for is sort of the from a brand perspective, they want a fresh feeling product yeah. line for their brand. But yeah. it's really a a fresh feel is a different thing than in innovating within a field um, or or
1: blue sky thinking.
0: Yeah,
2: totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. It, it's 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 a variation uh, it, it, because what you realize over time and that this is the reason it becomes a, a service-minded endeavor is because you have constituencies mm-hmm. think about how many people love star wars you know it's a it, it's it, it's a real religion in the uk right it's mm-hmm. like a legally recognized as a religion or something in the, the uk the force being a jedi you know <laughs> uh, you know so i mean that's There, there has never been, you know, in pop culture anyway. There's never been a a, a property that has affected so many people in such a personal way, and you have to be true to that. And I think you have to. There, some of those fans are a lot more conservative minded, and they want it to look exactly like Han Solo. Mm -hmm. Other fans are like, you know, do this, uh, you know, designer boutique, you know, urban vinyl toy, and it's. It's okay if it's tongue-in-cheek, and it's okay if he's got, uh, you know, a Wookiee hairball stain on a shirt or, you know, what, whatever the heck it is, and, because you, you have people that some want to be playful with it, and some live by it. And might.
0: is that uh, focus grouped prior to, like, product development, so your creative team is looking at, or is it all just the market tells you by the sales of previous lines of things that they've done like something you're doing?
2: Or is there user you metabolize it. it you know in, in the internet era you metabolize it very quickly not only that but the, when you're in toys there's a certain amount of people that are hired that that are these mm-hmm. you know, huge fans mm-hmm. so you you sort of part of that instinct is built into your teams and then the, the other part of it sort of comes from you know your partners at lucasfilm may say you know publishing is doing this and we think that's pretty cool what do you you know mm-hmm. how does that translate into toys or mm-hmm. you know we've got this licensee that's doing this really you know Legov's doing some awesome stuff and building you know mm-hmm. well, you know what do you think about that so i i think when you're a cultural creative like so many of us are you have to have your mm-hmm. your ear open and you you you, you, you look at things in a very different way. So you, you're picking up a lot of subconscious information that you, you, you just end up applying. And then you, you kind of also just foresee the trends of what's going to happen in your aisle. You know, Pokemon changed the face of action figures forever because the fantasy all of a sudden became about not about being the hero himself. Which everything up to that point was really more about oh well I want to be Leonardo from Ninja Turtles or you know exactly. I like Luke or I like Han and you know it's like being you know a kid arguing about who's better Michael Jackson or Prince or something but <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: um, it, it, did Pokemon changed that because now the kid said well I want to be a Pokemon trainer I don't really like Ash in the TV show he's kind of dopey. But that ash becomes a cipher for me to enter the fantasy through and someone for me to emulate, not someone for me to aspire. And that the difference in the in those mindsets are are huge because most people want to continue to prescribe here's Spider-Man and you wanna be him versus here's this endeavor that you can do here's this sort of uh, fantasy vocation that you can learn about and be and and master and you can create your own set of kind of achievement through this uh, play system instead of this you know this singular hero in his fantasy
0: so i i feel like I, i'm just now realizing that there's a part of jeff's earlier question that that I, that i totally threw us off of at one point, but I am curious about when you're starting off and, and this may be even now. So now you're, you're, you've moved on and you're doing your own thing. And I, from what I understand, you're consulting, uh, you're helping people bring things to market in, in taking that expertise and how to innovate toy creation and stuff uh, as a consultant or, 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 Am I describing that accurately at all
2: it, yes <laughs> okay. you, you know I mean it's a it, i I think at the end of the day nobody if you're a consultant, nobody likes to call themselves consultants like <laughs> okay. if, in in lieu of any mentor better term that's popped yeah. up like i you know i I'm not sure what else I would call myself
1: sherpa yeah, right. but, yeah.
2: Uh, <laughs> yes we we've tried to, uh, like literally for a while, I had a uh, gut wrench on my business card. <laughs> and because this is just sort of like, we, I want to help you through this, these gut wrenching times. But I also like I want to I want to tweak you like I'm going to I'm going to torque you mm-hmm. to do something new. And um, and uh, people call us for a view askew on what is possible, whether it's with a new license or it might be just a new internal toy line that they they're producing that they mm-hmm. might only have an invention for. And they need to know how to make more of it and to make it more uh, resonant and to make it more fun to play with. So w- we work with video game companies. We work with TV show creators. We work with toy companies. But essentially what we do in, that, in the center of all of that is uh, we create the, the sort of DNA that resides in the center of product, mm-hmm. branding, and narrative. And we create all the, all the core mechanics that can spread out into those things to, to give you a much more dynamic and fruitful you know, uh, property, essentially.
1: That sounds like it, it must feel a lot more freeing uh, than, than the sort of corporate constraints, although you're, you've learned a lot through the corporate constraints. Um, but does the work you're doing now feel a lot more creative?
2: I think the thing is is when you're when you start your career, you're sort of you're, you're learning the ins and outs and you're you're learning those dictates of like you know bumping your head against the wall to know that the wall's there, right. but as you as you start seeing that those walls are sort of theoretical and that you you can push them down or reach through them or whatever to get outside of that box, you, your viewpoint starts changing right and you you become this sort of meta level, creative like an art director or, mm-hmm. a, or, a, director yeah. or a or a jedi or a which jedi which
0: probably gets no. tax
1: deductible status i would
2: yeah, yeah, think you you go.
1: you begin <laughs> to be able to see the matrix
2: i should move to, yeah. to, to the uk right so essentially what happens is you 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 sort of if you're working on your skills like a lot of us have to do uh, you know to stay fresh in in our businesses you wake up one day and you're like, wow, I have all the I have this tool set that I'm not using. And I'm only using a quarter of my tool set in my current role, especially mm-hmm. if I'm doing this client service brand, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So what happens is now I can do this multilateral deep thinking and companies come to us for that because it, it's sort of a you know, part of my process working that way is is sort of you know reaching quickly for a lot of obviousness and a lot of levers that I think are important if a company is trying to innovate and get into a new space with, you know, for example, Batman or you know whatever any other brand, or even just their own internal invention. Mm-hmm. What are those levers that I can pull that are either based in child psychology or uh, uh, trends in UX or anything else? So I leverage those very quickly to feel what my pivot points are. And then I let them sort of sit for a while and work in my subconscious, and then I can come back and and create some tactics around around those levers a little bit more.
1: And it, it, it sounds a little sinister, leveraging. It sounds a lot like coaching. judo. <laughs>
2: well, <laughs> it, it is. I mean, it, yeah. the,
1: well, about it, children. Uh, when,
2: yeah. yes, it it can, there's parts of it that can be very Machiavellian and. Mm and uh it it it's one of the more frustrating parts of the business because when you when you have that sort of power and then you theoretically abuse it you know to whatever point it becomes exploitation right mm-hmm. and i think that there's any part of consumer products there's a certain amount of exploitation going on whether it's just fibbing in your commercials whether it's planned obsolescence that's the sinister part of what goes on and it, it's not just, you know, it, it it's almost any product whether you're apple or you know, uh apps or whatever, right? And I I think that that's the thing is you you go through your day and you're like, you know what? I don't I don't want to I want to do something more with these this amount of control that I have to create something more holistic and beneficial. And I think when I was talking about Pokemon all of a sudden, what what's great about Pokemon is you go from a hero worship mentality, which is very restrictive and denigrating, you know, to you psychologically. Right, I'm putting mm-hmm. this thing on a pedestal. Right now, you're looking at this character more like a tool. Like, oh, right. well, I can bend this to my own needs, and it becomes a more it becomes an endeavor for you. Not just a you know sit down and shut up and enjoy my movie kind of mm-hmm. endeavor, right?
1: <laughs> Fascinating.
2: So, uh, you're right. I, I think I think if you're doing UX, you're you, you're doing something. You know, you could do something underhanded, mm-hmm. whether you're responsible to it or not.
0: Sure, hmm. they call it dark patterns in user experience. Uh, <clears throat> right, which brings us back to the force.
1: So. <laughs> Apparently, apparently this this podcast is all about Star yeah. Wars Jedi powers. Yeah,
0: my 5-year-old son is going to be thrilled.
2: <laughs> oh, there you go.
0: <clears throat> I'm kind of curious you alluded to the process you're your uh, to a process that you sort of have now and in, in what you do uh for the for the brands and the companies that are that you're helping now and i'm curious if if you can describe it formally at all is you know for example are, is, does it always start with conversations are there particular questions that you always have to get answered and then like do you sketch like what what's what does a process look like for for doing what you do
2: uh, i'll use an example of working with an animation company because I think it's the, it's the most rich maybe for what we're talking about. A property holder, you know, they, they might have something that they're in formulation on, you know, where they're just like, you know, we've, we've got this insight and we want to build a kid's show that would be fun and different from anything that's out there. And here's the insights that we're relying on. And here's sort of, I ask them a lot about what their predisposition is about what, what the show might have to say. Because the narrative, I mean, you know, there's so much conversation and business about story right now, whether you're in advertising or product development, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so at the core of this, that each story has its mythological... You mentioned mnemonics earlier, but there's symbolism that goes on. And I think what ends up happening in my own process is there's a interpol- interpretation, what do you call that? Interpolation uh, that happens where what I'm doing is I'm asking literal questions about their mindset and their directives and, and what they're, what they want to know. And then I turn that into symbols. Mm-hmm. But those symbols are sort of uh, behavioral and narrative symbols. So there's a little bit of like Joseph Campbell, you know, the yep. guy that. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: the power of hero myth. With a
2: thousand, yeah, power of myth, hero of, of a thousand faces. Yeah. There's a little bit of that, of like what goes on. And it's why we call ourselves a culture-centered design company. is because we're thinking about culture. Why do people care? That's mm-hmm. the most important question that we ask ourselves. And we help people figure out why people will care. And we, we try to create decisions and choices and scenarios and contexts that will create more veracity and more ways for people to care about something that somebody is building. And that might be that, you know, in micro machines, you know, it's finicky, small. Uh, we call it finger food in the toy industry, right, so you want a lot of doors that open and trap doors and car shooters and you know whereas in a, a TV show you're, you're you're you spend a bunch of time talking about mastery arcs you know this hero he's on a he's on a mission and how, you know how does how does he achieve mastery over time and and what does the unfolding of the story propel you know in, in that those achievement arcs and uh, you know, if escapism is core to our beings, like we love a good story, we love to just turn off and watch a good story. How do you make that worthwhile? How do you make it easier to jump into the into the body of a Luke Skywalker as he's going down the trench to blow up the Death Star? Those are, the, to me, those are the most important questions, and they're usually do- questions that are answered by a director but I have a very static medium that I'm working in in toys all the time. I don't have that fourth dimension of chronology Mm -hmm. or interaction or, you know, deep cause and effect. So I have to push different buttons to allow the kid to create his own special effects, so to speak.
1: Hmm. Mm -hmm. We've talked on this uh, podcast in the past about uh, sort of the idea of creating within boundaries um and and maybe we'll talk about it more specifically on, on a future podcast but like um you know i've certainly found that when i can you know in in writing music if i could create even artificial creative boundaries i could create a more focused song uh within those you know i'm going to write a song that only has two chords you know or something that sort of limits uh, you know, and and ultimately, I think focuses uh, the creativity. It's interesting to hear a lot of you know, and, and even in the in the music industry, part of it was w- what would sell. You know, what what's a play getting played on the radio. What are people interested in? How can I do that in a way? that doesn't completely give up my, my, uh, creative relevance, you know, like, you know, can I, can I make a good song that that would play a lot on the radio alongside all these bad songs? Um, and, uh, it's, it's interesting to, to hear that. Um, you know, it's, it's even that much more in the, in the commercial toy industry. Uh, and yet, you know, things come out and there are innovations and, uh, um, Yeah. Do you find? So you mentioned Pokemon. Have there been other things that have come out that have sort of been a surprise, sort of a game changer uh, kind of kind of toys that have come out that have felt like whoa, like I wasn't expecting that, or that was a very creative thing in a very commercial industry uh, that was also successful. Uh,
2: Definitely, uh, you know, to follow that. Same psychology path about the the empowering kids a little bit more. The two brands that have hit big after Pokemon. Because Pokemon is only a marginal, it's a huge property. Mm-hmm. But toy-wise, it's actually not that big. It's consistent business. And it's been around for 15 years. But it's not a high point. A couple of high point phenomena that have happened since the production, since the creation of Pokemon, are Beyblade and Bakugan. And Beyblade is a it's a build system for battling tops that lets the kid sort of choose the fighting style of his top and they play with them in stadiums and it's sort of, you know, mentally the, the psychology is more like you're a professional wrestler in some ways uh, or you're a manager of a professional wrestler so you're pulling the cord on these tops and they go into a stadium and the stadium is arched so that they continually bounce into one another. And what you find is kids just love that because it's very visceral. There's fighting that's going on. They, (laughs) They have some control, right? They can decide whether they're an attack type that might, you know, spin around the stadium more or an endurance type that may just sit right in the center and they're hard to knock over. Um, but they, they use this as a way to sort of, it, it creates a lot of playground social capital, social currency that they can, you know, because now there's systems that they can talk about. And they might talk about it in the same way that they'll talk about, like, Minecraft or something else that kids sort of get into in big droves. Right. Uh, another one is uh, Bakugan, which were just little magnetic balls that, you know, spring open when you roll them across a the, uh, trading card magnetized or a trading card that has a piece of metal in it so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it was the same sort of mentality It's, it's like both of these were tv shows and what i would say about them is they're an innovation that steers off of this action figure path but they're still grounded in this action figure mentality right because there's personas behind each of the tops you know there's a a Pegasus behind the main Top and blade and the in Bakugan the main you know the main ball that transforms transforms into a dragon. So there are these sort of mythical personas that are still there and represented and the kids can get behind these personas and they become ciphers for the kid to implant themselves into like your avatar you know on a forum or something like that or even a video game character. So The psychology of why kids are getting involved is changing a lot, but they're also voting with their dollars and they're not buying action figures in the same way and as deep as they used to. So things like that, you know, I mean, and then you watch something like Lego that has just been, you know, in the 70s, you thought about Lego as like, oh, you know, it's these smart toys and I like playing with them, but they're really expensive and, you know, I can't make everything I want to. There's a lot of limitations to the look and the, what I can build. But now it's like this platform, it's an ecosystem mm-hmm. because they've got so much tooling now. You can make almost anything that you want and they're adding to it all the time. To me, Lego is the Apple of the toy industry right now. Hmm, they're just doing yeah. amazing things. Whether, whether they their interactive, their video games are doing well. They're, you know, and they're they're using that minifigure that so many people have fallen in love with as really the core icon of their business. Now it's like, here's Batman as a minifigure. Here's yeah, every the brand outfit, yeah. You know? hmm. And you search them out because it it's got a playful. Those characters are in a playful. Uh, they're the most playful style of persona so you can have a dark knight christian bale gravelly batman that the the, the you know the, the event happens and it's dark and sort of twisted at times and now you have this batman that you know is sort of uh light-hearted and free and casual and i can i don't have to get caught up in that apocalyptic you know, <laughs> Mindset. Like yeah, that. You know, right. Well, you get kids,
1: you get kids playing with the toys, having never seen the movies. Yeah, yeah. uh yeah.
2: And I you know.
1: can give Batman Hobbit feet.
2: Right there, you go. Uh, that's huge. <laughs> it's huge, right? You give him a bat. Give Batman the anime hair. You yeah. know. Um, <laughs> I I think that that whole the the butching up and the sort of darkness that is in so much pop culture. I mean, it, it, you, you just see it in all the military fantasy video games and all that. It. It's sort of, you know, I wish that that wasn't as pervasive as it is. But what I see from Lego and even things like Pokemon is a a more whimsical approach creeping its way in. And I don't know if this is just the, you know, the whatever the next generation is down from the millennials, our kids age right now. But, uh, you know, they're a lot more emo and they're a lot more they're into things for different reasons, almost more collaborative than than competitive um it's not just about good versus evil it's really about you know how do we work together to do big things
1: yeah i mean looking at these this this trend i mean these toys are systems and they're deep and you can build things with them and you know i mean it's uh you know they seem to be a little bit more rooted almost in like you know dungeons and dragons of of when i was yeah. a kid you know these the like deep mythology i mean from a sales standpoint there's obviously all the different characters and stuff you can buy and sort of compete and fight them and you know and it kind of keeps you in the in the system economically uh, as opposed to just sort of buying a a barbie doll and being done with it or or whatever yeah. um yeah but it but i also see a lot of parallels between this sort of creating systems and and like programming you know mm-hmm. i mean a lot of the the work that we're doing as adults uh in you know building websites and stuff like that it actually kind of you know reminds me of bakugan <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know this kind of like you got to understand all the different parts and how they fit together and when the mm-hmm. two things move, you know interact with each other which one wins and uh you know there's, there's you can get really deep in with it and i guess with these toys the you know, one of the winning things is that, uh, that you don't necessarily need to get in deep with it in order to, uh, have fun.
2: Yeah. It's, it's casual. (laughs) One thing that, that sort of build system mentality, that platforming that's going on, like that's one of the things that we really enjoy because we've worked on several build systems and, uh, we've been, I've been tinkering around with that, uh, just product on demand, you know, in a build system format with a Project called modabot but it's 3D printed at Shapeways, and people just order it one at a time. You oh know, wow! No, you're you're not you're not paying for tooling. Mm-hmm. You're not creating demand. So what it is is you just you're uh, you know I'm just sitting and building pieces that add to this conglomerate platform, and it just expands over time. And then you know people are sort of deciding to get in. I haven't I i'm just at the turning point like i haven't really promoted it or anything um because i'm just now getting to the point where it feels more like an ecosystem like now i can put the character and he looks like a blank slate and then i look over here and there's stuff i can plug onto him and you know he's highly posable and expressive so but that you're right i mean you have to create room for the user and i think lego is great at it all the new toy brands are great at it and the, the, the things that do well in the future are going to feel more like trading card games. They're going to be complex, they're going to be uh, partitioned. They're going to be sort of semi-mediated uh, in advance for you. And it's just it's great. it's great interaction design that's happening. It's great experience design that's happening in toys, but it's still fringe. How and do you, so how do
1: you, how do you that think center. that that 3D printing and other new technologies will affect toys moving forward? What what I mean, are the interesting and exciting things toys. about
2: it? It's already affecting toys because as a as a creator, like I can work with a company now and I, I can just spend a couple hours uh, you know working something up to show them in prototyping in 3D yeah to yeah. prototype something and you know, I, I don't have a 3D printer on my desk, but I've got a friend out in uh, uh, Cape Cod that has a an ABS printer. And ABS is the plastic that you know most toys are made out of. It's the it's the phone case plastic, mm-hmm. right? So it's pretty hard and robust. So you can prototype directly in that, and and if you know what you're doing, you can create a quick, quickly functional model that will give you size. It'll be durable, it it will let you get something in a kid's hands very quickly to see how they hold it. You know, I mean, prototyping in 3D has so many uses. The commercial use is a little bit slow, and from the people that I talk to in the industry, that's partially because so many patents were created at a very early stage that there are a lot of that it's been very difficult for companies to get into um, the category in a way that will benefit um, producers. That someone like me who wants to just produce one product at a time, you know, right now it's very expensive because when you buy a Madobot, it's like seventeen bucks and it's like fifteen pieces and there's no paint, so it's it's not like buying a. Uh, an action figure it's a Mm -hmm. lot like buying this you know very niche uh unrefined sort of thing but it has a lot Mm -hmm. of charm just in the fact that you know i got to choose it and it just shows up and it's this thing in a box that
0: it looks a little bit like a clone from the star wars clone wars too
2: (laughs) yeah well he's very he's very geometric and he uh, you know he's meant to be sort of an avatar he's not Mm -hmm. meant to you know he's not trying to be you know just monolithic character he's really uh, a blank slate for you Mm -hmm. so i think that that's what you you want to look at him and go oh well i see a lot of opportunity what are those holes in him what are those so but i i think you're you know when you think of like a for a company like pixar who might send their film to a render farm right or they Mm -hmm. may have their own render farm that they've paid for that basically they send this scene to and it renders it in high resolution so that they can sort of edit it and cut it into the film. I I think somewhere in the future of toys is, is a, is a render farm for 3d implements. And I I think that we'll get to a render farm more quickly, just like a wind farm is happening faster Mm -hmm. than people are putting a, you know, wind turbine on the top of their house. I think that you're going to get to a render farm, and I think that's what Shapeways sort of represents, or these other companies, Pinoco you know, and they're working on on solving this problem. It's an amazing thing. I mean, it's still ten days before I do a model, and then it shows up at my door. But when it does show up at my door, you know, it's like Christmas, like Mm -hmm. you know, every time because I'm (laughs) like, oh, this fits together this way, and look at how his helmet fits, and You know, and what it ends up being is he's in constant beta. You know, I just changed some parts and announced it yesterday. I just started a little Twitter feed for Autobot. So, you know, I just fixed some parts that had these imperfections, and I didn't realize it. I thought it was an imperfection in the printing process, not in the files. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's when you do something like this, it is constant beta because it's a living organism. It's a wiki, right?
0: Right. Right. You can iterate, which is... Fascinating, yeah. It's the future, man.
2: It is. It is. <laughs> Endless in the, in the future,
0: in the future, nothing will ever be done. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh
2: man. It, yeah.
0: Even even real things that you can hold in your hand are yeah. Just, are in the just future you'll never 0. be point seven. You'll
1: never be able to drink champagne and walk away. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I don't know that that's a bad thing. You yeah. know, I mean, I, it, I I don't know how you guys feel about it, but to to be able to, you know, it's part of that hacker mindset mm-hmm. uh,
1: yeah i mean websites are certainly that way you, you know
2: open the we hood, start, get in there and tinker and fix it and you know optimize right? yeah.
1: yeah we sort of snicker when people say and then we'll be done with the website like, right <laughs> okay right. <laughs> Sure. and you'll be happy with it too and you'll never want it to change
2: right yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, ours is looking a little long in the tooth, so I I know that that's not really true.
1: See, there you go. <laughs> yeah, it looked so cool with the paisley background, and now it's just not in fashion anymore. So yeah, paisley's huge on the web now. It's yeah. coming back, man. It's coming back. <laughs> Well, thanks a lot
0: for for joining us, Wayne, and taking the time. Uh, If you're listening to the show and you've been thinking you want to create a toy and need some consulting (laughs) and some help and some mentorship around how to innovate it, that is awesome, just that we have people that like that, that are listening to the show. Uh, And Wayne's uh, company is called Dynamo Development Labs. Is that, did I get that right, Wayne? That
2: is. yes. Yeah.
0: so the website that he said is long in the tooth is, is dynamodevlabs.com, so check it out. Um, yeah, and just thanks so much for taking time to talk with us.
2: No problem. Thanks for having me. It's been fun.
1: Yeah, thanks, Wayne. Bye, everyone.
2: Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Roger your luck.